Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. G'day and welcome to the Space Junk Podcast. Today I'm joined by Luke Pringle, a high school student doing virtual work experience with me. Luke is studying engineering, physics and textile design and would one day like to work in the space industry as an astronaut or maybe an astronautical engineer. It's been an awesome experience having Luke join my week in virtual format and I'd like to encourage anyone out there who does something cool to consider offering virtual work experience to a young person during this challenging time. I'm going to hand over to Luke now, who picked the guest and the topic, and will be hosting, editing, and producing this episode. Luke, over to you. Thank you, Annie. So, hi, everyone. Welcome to the Space Junk Podcast. I'm your guest host today. Uh, my name is Luke Pringle. I'm 16 years old, and I'm a Year 10 student from Cherrybrook Technology High School, and I'm very excited to be here. I've been working with Annie for a couple of days now. She's very great, and I'm happy to be interviewing Nick McLean. So, I'm joined here by Nick McLean, who's a propulsion engineer from Gilmore Space Technologies. So Nick, could you please introduce yourself and tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, no worries. Um, my name is Nick McLean. And uh, yeah, as you said, pleasure to be here and um, looking forward to chatting uh, with you guys in depth. Um, I'm a propulsion engineer with Gilmore Space Technologies. I'm 25 years old, um, I had to think. <laughs> and I've been working here for just over three years. Uh, it was my first job out of uni, um, but I had some other uh, engineering roles while I was at uni, just as undergraduate roles. Um, yeah, basically been, my experience has been the last yeah, few years in lots of different projects within the propulsion team. Hey listeners, it's Annie here. You might be wondering why there's a tweeting noise in the background when Nick is talking. The sound comes from a type of Australian bird called the noisy miner. And no, I'm not joking, that is its name. It was sitting just outside the window of Nick's office and it was really determined to be a guest on the podcast. We tried removing the sound in post-production, but it just can't be done. So I apologize, but also welcome to the sound of spring on the East coast of Australia. After a while, your brain sort of blocks it out. All right, back to Luke. Very interesting, Nick. So Nick, uh, we've been talking to James Gilmore a bit just over some stuff, uh, the co-founder of Gilmore Space. And he said that when he was hiring you, he said you had the right stuff. Do you know what, do you know what he meant by that? Like what qualities do you believe he was looking for when he says you have the, the quote, the right stuff? <laughs> yeah, um, I think there's um, most of the time with these things, it's usually, um, which I guess comes as a surprise to some people and often people don't believe it, but it's actually more the, um, the soft skills than it is the technical skills. Um, probably the biggest reason that, that is the case, and I can touch on what that means a bit more, but the reason that's the case isn't necessarily because the technical skills aren't important. But when you're looking to hire someone and basically bring them on board the team, the fundamentally the most important thing is that they mesh well with the team, that they work hard and that they're passionate about what they're doing. Um, it was actually, aside from just, I guess, hiring for the right stuff, James always had the mentality that you should be giving people projects that they're passionate about. So he'll often ask, you know, especially when I was starting, what do you want to do? And then that would be kind of the direction you try and give people work because they're more likely to work hard in something they're enjoying. 
Um, but yeah, when, I think with the right stuff, what it means in, I guess, in my case, and I think in the case of a lot of people here, rather than just talking about myself and saying I've got a huge ego, um, the right stuff is probably, um, I think one of the words I used to use a lot and kind of still do is tenacity. So like a, an ability to cons consistently work at something, regardless of how daunting it seems or how everything seems to be going wrong all the time. So that tenacious mindset is probably, I think, fundamentally still the most important thing about being in this industry because in more so than others, just because there's a lot of unknowns, you can't just go to a book and say, yep, this is the solution. Okay, now I plug away the numbers and I work it out and it'll be fixed. A lot of the time it is, here is a problem. No one's solved it before or people who have aren't accessible because they lived during space shuttle days and you can't talk to them anymore. And a lot of that was in their head. Um, so you kind of have to rediscover and relearn these things. And so, um, an ability to be tenacious and um, I think work hard at a problem until it's solved and then fundamentally be a good fit for the team, which really just means that you can, it doesn't, everyone's got a different personality. They're not all clients here, definitely not, in fact. Um, but you just have to be able to keep working with people and make sure that um, your own, you're all working as a team and it's not an individual effort, it's collective. So you're often looking after people or working on projects that not necessarily yours to help them get across the line as well. So, so James Gilmore hires people not based on, of course, he wants the technical skills to be there. He wants to be able to solve the problems and do the work you have to do, but he's more looking for your, your ability to mesh with the team and just your competency in working with the team and completing the task given to you with endurance and tenacity, as you said. So that's what he's looking for. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, and then obviously the technical skills are there as well. Um, but it, as I said, it's just a more challenging thing. You kind of have to, um, you can query people in interviews and try and get those questions about gauging their technical skills. And you can obviously look at their previous experience, how they went at uni, um, what they're involved yeah. in. Um, but yeah, fundamentally in an interview, that's what we're most looking for. Yeah. So what advice would you give young people who are trying to pursue a career in aeronautical engineering or engineering? Maybe they want, so what would you recommend to young people pursuing a job in space sectors like you? Um, I think the most important thing is probably to not feel like there is a specific path. And so that's why I'll hesitate to give too much specific advice. Like I followed a trajectory that someone else would have followed a completely different trajectory on. So um, I guess the most important thing is to like keep working on something you're enjoying. So if you have in your mind you want to work in the space industry, that's great because there are all these different job opportunities in the space industry that range in different branches of engineering or science or fabrication. Um, and they aren't strictly um, like propulsion engineering or aeronautical engineering. So you might find, especially as you get more advanced into the, the degree you're studying, for instance, let's say you do an aerospace degree or an aeronautical and you say, oh, it's not really for me, this mechanical side of things, I'm actually much more interested in the electrical side of things. Um, electrical engineering is just as important in space engineering um, in fact, in some industries, in some sectors of space, it's more important, for instance, like satellites. Um, electrical engineering is one of the most desired roles in, in satellite industry, um, as well as software engineering, another great example of, you can work in the space industry without having a specific degree that says, I'm an aerospace or I'm an aeronautical engineer. Um, but so when I say, like, I don't think you have to link the two things too tightly. So if you're gonna go do aeronautical engineering, and I recommend it, it's a great degree, um, but you might find, oh, it's not really for me, but I don't want to give up on this dream of working in space. And those two things don't have to be so intrinsically linked. You can have a space degree, 
uh, sorry, you can work in the space industry and you can have a degree that might otherwise not be linked to it. And in fact, even the, um, I mean, when I was a kid, when I was in grade 12, like grade 11 and 12, the reason I worked so hard at school wasn't because I wanted to get into engineering at all. I actually wanted to be a vet. So I was um, trying to get a really high, I was in Tasmania at the time for grade 11 and 12. It wasn't an OP system, but I was trying to get a pretty high OP or ATAR. Um, yeah, it's, not, it's not easy to be a vet. Got to be really one of the smart, smart ones. ones. Yeah. Um, and then I had graduated. I had like, there were a few different offers from different universities. And at the time I just really liked physics. And I was like, well, if I go to a physics degree, I'll, um, I won't necessarily, I can come back and do the vet degree later. I don't, don't see myself ever doing a vet science degree and coming back and doing physics. And so that honestly, that decision was pretty influential for me because I went, did the physics degree. Uh, I was two years into it when I decided to bridge it with a mechanical engineering degree. And um, by doing both of those, I had the very similar um, degree to an aerospace degree where it's a combination of mechanical engineering and physics. Um, yeah, like I certainly didn't have any, like as a kid, I really enjoyed space, but it wasn't ever in my path I, that I was thinking anyway when I was at school, but I was working towards something I enjoyed doing. And then I went to physics and I put everything I put into that. And then I went into engineering and I put everything I put into that and because I enjoyed it, but I didn't get too held up on the fact that I was no longer doing vet science, which I'd previously told myself, that's what you should be doing. That's the, that's what you want to do. Um, and like, that's my path and there's lots of different ones. Um, and you know, some people, we've got people in the mechanical team, uh, who were previously, um, they did, they'd done trades through, um, TAFE and they've been working in, um, potentially like for one of them was a fitter and turner for about, uh, half a dozen years. Um, and he went back to uni, did a mechanical engineering degree. And now he's working here and that was just like he decided oh, i want to upskill i want to go and work in engineering i'm moving on to something different and then now he's here as well so there's um there's lots of different avenues in um i think if you want to be in the space industry you and you work hard at it you will be it's not really um yeah, yeah so just kind of take things as they come i wouldn't get too caught up on the details too early yeah so it's yes. one of, so you're saying it's one of those fields where there's no set path on how to get there. You, you, if you want to get there, eventually you'll find your way. There's multiple different, all, ro all roads lead to Rome. So is that? <laughs> yeah, basically. Hopefully it's Rome and it feels like Rome right now in uh, the good times. <laughs> it was on the rise, so, at least in Australia. So having said that all roads lead to the space sector, uh, would you say that there's any subjects in school that would assist getting to there as fast as possible? Or is it, just as you say, eventually you'll find your way there. It doesn't matter where you've come from, but physics I'm sure would help more than other subjects would. Yeah, no, that, that's fair enough. Um, I think that's a good point as well. Like the core um, science subjects, they try and get you to do in grade 11 and 12 for engineering. Those same ones are basically applicable or science, I should say. Um, so physics, is obviously a great help and I loved physics. So I'm so totally biased and just recommend it to everyone, but chemistry as well is quite useful. Um, that's something that's, it's actually interesting within, uh, cause I'm in the propulsion team. We're probably the one with the most delicate balance between physics and chemistry where, um, the chemistry is obviously driving everything that happens inside the combustion chamber, but fundamentally, uh, people who understand the physics principles have been learning and adapting the chemistry. So we didn't have many um, chemical engineers that started with us, but rather we had a bunch of people with a physics background and they've learned the chemistry and tried to apply it. Um, but it can work both ways as well. So I think um, 
at school, like it's the chemistry, physics, maths, maths always, it's good. Um, yeah, maths is the best. Yeah, the fundamental science subjects, basically. As well as I think now more than when I was at uni, uh, when I was at high school rather, um, there's more software available, so courses for software uh, and programming. And I think that as well is a great tool to have. Um, and I was actually talking to someone about this the other day. Um, I think now there's more opportunities than ever to learn programming at a young age. And um, you apply it everywhere. You don't have to be a software engineer to be doing coding. Pretty much any engineer ends up doing coding just in a different uh, level. I certainly don't consider myself a coder and people upstairs <laughs> in the software team would be telling me the same thing. But having that ability to, the thing I like most about that is it applies a really logic-based pattern to something. So you have to complete this task and because it's a computer and it's a software program, it follows these logical steps and it makes you think things through as a user as this is the logical process. And that's how we deal with all the problems we face as well. You have to just sit down, look at the logic, map it out and then solve it. And that's something we apply every day pretty much. So uh, don't knock yourself on being a coder. I think you're far better than what <laughs> my abilities are. I'm only just starting. So I'm sure you're better than me. But speaking of that, um, so you're saying that you have coders upstairs and other people. So what other people do you work with like in the science sector? So it's obviously it's not just scientists, engineers, physicists, and then that's the bar. That's everyone who works there. So what other people does Gilmore employ other than just scientists? And Yeah, aside from um, the engineers, and I suppose on the, the disciplines I can just touch on, that we have pretty much every discipline of engineering. Um, there's the propulsion engineers are typically chemical or mechanical, as I was saying before. There's uh, electrical engineers, software engineers, and aside from um, and mechatronics, of course. And then there's also people in the business, marketing, and um, the finances teams. So there's people who are helping push the business forward that often kind of behind the scenes playing all the strings because that's where we get there eventually. They're all the people who make sure things happen um, behind the scenes and we kind of get a bit more of the limelight, but it's to no real, um, I guess, the, in my mind, sometimes it's no, to no real justification because they're doing just as much work. Um, they're just in a different sector. And then obviously the fabrication team is probably another group that they're like, becoming over the last year has been like advancing very quickly. We've always had fabricators with us, but um, now the team is a really um, cohesive unit. Um, you basically, because we're producing a lot more in-house now, um, the we have uh, machinists, uh, welders, general fabricators, as well as just a lot of um, skilled technicians. So people who can, um, one of the important aspects of anything we do is having quality assurance. So it might seem trivial, but things like making sure that a component has been delivered to us in the right spec and confirming that it is good. It can be as simple as we have a cylinder and we want to make sure that the internal diameter is perfect. They will confirm that for us and they can sign off on it. But there's also some more complicated units, um, especially in the electrical side of things. We have um, two highly skilled electrical technicians and they basically make sure that... So I, we often have these things in our head that we dream up. We'll go outside and do a talk to these people and electrical technicians or the mechanical technicians will basically tell us how to do it um, and we just follow their advice a lot of the time so um, yeah because fundamentally they're the people who will end up building it and making the thing work so I think as far as um, other people that work here it's those are the core groups but it's the same kind of groups you'd get in any kind of um, business really there's just uh, more engineers than there are in the other roles. So it's primarily engineers, but has lots of people, as you said, business, because someone has to acquire the finances to, you know, 
build everything that you guys work with. So yeah, there's lots of people. So does everyone who you work with or everyone, you know, have a university degree of some sort, because is, is a university degree necessary for a pursuit in the space sector? Yeah, absolutely not. The, um, there are lots of people I work with that either, um, you could you, even, I think, I'll come back on that actually, I had just another thought, but no, the, you don't have to have an engineering degree or any degree to um, work in the space sector. The, as I was saying before, and that's kind of where it all comes back to the, with this idea of um, an ability to work hard at something and, and the soft skills mattering more um, in the sense that you have to have a technical skill set, but it could be quite a niche skill set. Um, it doesn't have to be something where you've gone out and you've studied for four years to become a mechanical or an electrical engineer. Um, we recently uh, employed a welder and he has uh, quite an advanced certificates in welding and he is a vital part of the team now because he was working um, on, I can't remember what, I shouldn't know where he was working before, but he was previously um, working on lots of different equipment for the last 10 years and highly advanced welding and knows the basic of the procedure to make something weld and not fail. Um, <laughs> and that kind of thing. So he doesn't have a university degree, but he does have advanced certificates at TAFE. Um, but even saying that, you don't necessarily need to have those advanced certificates. You can learn things on the job, or you could have had come through a completely different route. Um, what I was going to touch on before is just that um, even previously, I think it's becoming less and less so, but uh, you didn't actually have to have an engineering degree to be considered an engineer uh, within the industry, particularly actually that's the thing in Australia that's different to other Countries, other countries, it's actually a lot more common. For instance, in the UK, you don't have to have an engineering degree necessarily um, to be have the title or a job role as an engineer. Um, you could have worked up in the same way some of the fabricators have here um, to have an advanced enough understanding of the principles that you're considered an engineer and you can do design work, you can do the analysis. Um, yeah, so that that role, that the title of engineering to me has always kind of just been, it's great to do the degree, it's very useful, um, but it's not a essential part of it. Yeah, so it goes back on what you said before about how it's more about soft skills mel- melding well with the team and you know having team coordination and being dedicated to doing your job and doing it well. So it's not exactly about the technical skills, but just about the soft skills, correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because you can always get taught the technical skills on the job and learn as you go. And I'm sure you're still learning new things on the job every day. Every day yeah. you walk up to work and you learn something new. That's a great part of life. Uh, so... I was just about to ask, uh, what is exactly a fabricator's job? Because you were talking about them a bit. So what exactly does a fabricator do? Um, the best way to do this is probably, the best way to explain it is probably through examples. Like, just because I can, they're more fresh in my head at the moment. We have um, a team of, I won't understate it, but it's around um, 10 to 15 fabricators, or at least um, technicians. And um, they basically, um, there is some that will be working on um, advanced machinery. So we have uh, CNC machines and um, which will be a CNC mill or a CNC lathe or even uh, hand lathes and hand mills. Um, and that's generally they'll machine something from a block. So if we have, for instance, a, uh, what's a good example of a, a part we might have is like an injector, which let's say we have an injector that looks like a dome. And we originally, basically all material just comes as a billet or a plate of that raw material. And they will go and machine it to its final shape as per a drawing we've provided. So we'll do up the drawing in CAD provide that to the machinists and they will give us the delivered product, which is now fit for purpose, um, scrapping a bunch of the material and creating this final product for us. Then there's on the opposite side of that is um, the fabricators who are kind of assembling things or integrating, which isn't always just as simple as um, basically putting all the bolts and fixtures into something, but 
rather um, it could be you have um, a good example we have at the moment is we're building quite a few different fluid systems which effectively are the um, the structures that will hold a bunch of our pipe work so for any engine you also have to have all the fluids leading up to the um, glamorous part of the engine and the structures that are side, that build up for that fluid system need to be built by someone and so you'll have um, a frame that's built up and then from that frame you'll have a bunch of valves instrumentation and tube work that needs to be assembled as well so they'll assemble all that um, and that is a lot less um, what's the word I should put there it's a lot less um, defined by us so we might have a layout of what we kind of envision this fluid system will look like which might say I'll give an example is you have a section of tube, you have a regulator which will change the pressure in the system and then maybe you have a valve downstream. That's a really simple example, but to we have this idea that's what we want to assemble. Fabricators will look at this and they'll work on basically how to best lay this out so that it's easy to use as a user and also functions correctly. Um, and they will take that so they have a lot less, whereas the, the machinists might have a quite detailed drawing on what we need to achieve. Um, fabricators on something more loosely defined will basically have to use a lot more creative intuition to deliver the final product. And now we're kind of constantly working with them on that just so we know that we're on the same page. Um, and then there's other sides of things like the QA technicians that will be checking things that are in the right quality and um, the electrical technicians who, similarly to the fluids guys, they will be building up something with a lot looser defined design. So I think those, whenever people are working on that, it's a lot more like, really leaning on their skills and their skill set. We basically say, you know, we've you've delivered this stuff to us before, we trust that you can deliver it again. And yeah, they really carry us through sometimes. You, as I was saying earlier, you're a propulsion engineer, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so um, Gilmore Space, they specialize in hybrid rocket systems and hybrid engines, specifically mm -hmm. an innovation in propulsion techniques. So can you explain uh, in simple but broad terms, not too detailed, uh, what a hybrid engine and a hybrid rocket is. Sure, sure. Um, so fundamentally, there's um, three different types of engines used in rocket propulsion. There's the, uh, the solid engines, which are just a solid fuel where the, basically for any combustion, you need a fuel and an oxidizer. Um, and just like any, any combustion at all, with a wood fire, you have oxygen and the wood burning the fire. Um, so with a solid engine, you have um, the solid and the oxidizer are mixed into a solid compound. Um, those are the ones used on um, the space shuttle side boosters, the huge ones trapped to the side. They're often basically producing a huge amount of thrust without having a complex system associated because it's just one large grain. There's bipropellant engines, which are liquid uh, fuel and liquid oxidizer mixed together, and that creates the um, combustion. And they are famous for having really high performance for the mass input to the engine. They have the best basically the best bang for your buck. Um, and the, the two issues with that, I think this is the best lead into hybrids is that I, hybrids are kind of like a Goldilocks in between these two systems because the solid boosters um, deliver high performance, oh, sorry, deliver average performance, um, but high thrust and they're very simple, except for the fact that they can be um, quite hazardous to deal with because the fuel and the oxidizer is linked in together. Um, they can be triggered by something as simple as a static charge. So if you had that fuel grain sitting in front of you and you wiped your hands together and you, or you shuffled your feet on the ground and you touched it, you could actually ignite it just in the workshop, um, which is obviously- That wouldn't be good. That would not be good at all. In fact, there's just, actually a pretty famous example of how that goes wrong. 
and the Python engines uh, have the really good performance and don't have this inherent risk, the engine itself can be statically charged, it's okay, because the liquid fuel and oxidizer are kept separate. The challenge with bipolar engines is that they um, have quite a complex uh, ignition system, and the challenge that usually comes up with them is combustion instability, which means that um, you have to, you'll see the plume, it won't be that nice famous rocket engine plume that you'll see on other nice launches, but it'll be charging and unstable, which can basically ruin the flight vehicle, the actual structure. And so that's a lead into hybrid engines, which have a liquid oxidizer and a solid fuel. Uh, and the solid fuel is completely inert. It can be basically, you can do whatever you wanted to it, which we have, um, and it won't ignite, it won't spontaneously ignite. You can consider it like wood sitting on the table. Um, it's not going to spontaneously ignite without the oxidizer, um, which makes it inherently a lot safer to deal with and to build. So it gives you that safety that the solid rocket doesn't. And it gives you, because the system is a lot simpler, um, than a bike plant engine where you have to have the injection of two liquids be basically perfect to get good combustion stability. You only have to rely on one oxidizer. Uh, it basically simplifies your system down and makes them much easier to produce. So that's the kind of Goldilocks there where they're better than solid rocket boosters because they are uh, inherently safer and less hazardous to deal with. And their advantage of the bike plant engines is that they um, have this less, uh, less prone to combustion instability. And it's not to say that Basically, the way I'd put these things is always that each engine has its place. When you're looking into really high performance, which is what you want in space propulsion, something where you have a really light vehicle up in space and you want to get, as I was saying, maximum bang for your buck, carry the least onboard propellant for the performance you get, that's where people use bipropellant engines. That's why it's conventionally used more frequently. Um, and we just found that to get to orbit and to get to orbit safely and efficiently, hybrid engines are that perfect mix for us. So. Yeah, I, I, I basically consider them like they've all got their strengths and weaknesses and you just have to know yeah. when to open. So with a hybrid engine, you can you can rub your hands together as much as you want and touch it and it's not going to blow up. That seems like a massive prop. No, <laughs> no, so there's no no carpet allowed in the office if you're working on solid rocket boosters because exactly. one shuffle too much and it's all gone. Well done, yeah. So I recently saw on the Gilmore website that uh, you achieved a stable combustion of a hybrid engine for a hundred and ten seconds. That's uh, more than a minute longer than the test uh, one month ago, which was about forty-five seconds. So, how big of a milestone is this for Gilmore Space, and what does it mark as a term for the effectiveness of the burns and the continuation of the development? So, um, what, what kind of milestone is it as your, is it a good, is it a big milestone? Are you happy with your progress? I'm I'm pretty happy with the progress. Yeah, we were um, previously. I mean, before we started all this, our burn durations had always been around 20 seconds or less. Um, and this kind of as we ramped up our burn duration, it's something that we've always known. We've we've delivered engines before that have really high thrust um, and have pretty good performance as well. Um, but the thing about burn duration is basically for the orbital vehicle, you have to burn these things for quite a long time. So burning something for 20 seconds is not super useful for us unless we have an incredibly high thrust vehicle and it would just be like, it's gone. As you see any of the um, space launches, they're basically, it's actually kind of crazy when you watch space launches because they burn for so long. Um, and it's kind of, for us, kind of unfathomable. And we're starting to, I guess, guess that, get that confidence in the system that we can burn for quite a long time. Um, but until these tests recently, we hadn't proven to ourselves. Fundamentally, there's nothing um, crazy about burning for a longer duration. 
um, you have to have a lot more um, 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 robust engine, a more robust engine for these longer burn durations. Um, and that's fundamentally what we discovered, but we were like, yep, we're confident enough in this engine that we can burn it for the, what we call full burn duration. Um, full is totally um, kind of hand wavy. Um, it's only full for us at the moment because our first stage engine has a burn duration of 110 seconds. So if you wanted to burn for 120 or 150, if you needed to, that would be now your full burn duration. But that's why it was such a big achievement for us is that we've burned for the same burn duration that our first stage engine will be, which basically says, hey, our engine's pretty good. It's not going to basically blow up too soon, which would be not good. It's going to blow up in the exact way you want it to at the end. <laughs> exactly. After it's, <laughs> it's floating back. Ooh, after it's floating problem. away, it can do whatever it wants. We don't need it anymore. Yeah. So you're saying that, so you so your full, so your first engine, it's all, it's all good. So that's the first engine. So with the full burn, you're saying that you've reached full confidence in your first engine or the first yeah, the, finished engine. The, the test engine, basically, this is the engine that is a smaller subscale version of our larger first stage engine. So it's the, basically we'll scale it up in size um, later this year. We're actually joined at the moment um, and we will burn at this higher thrust. Um, we'll kind of what we, the way we approach all of these things is you we design and build the engine. We run it in with a few tests that are shorter duration just to make sure everything's working well with the system. And in fact, it's a lot more cost effective in that sense because you don't need we don't need to burn for 110 seconds to know the performance of the engine. We could burn for two seconds and we'd get everything we needed um, in terms of the actual combustion performance. So what we're going to do is build up this larger engine, burn it for um, some time between five and 20 seconds. Um, and then we do that a couple of times, make sure everything's working well, and then we can start pushing on the burn duration and building it up. Um, and that will be, we basically go through that iterative process. But once we have in our minds, basically the way this, well, and not just our minds, the way this works is we will basically have proven that we can burn for quite a long time, which means the internal robustness of our test engine is good. And once we validate, we can deliver this high thrust that we're after for the first stage, those two things will combine and we can burn with high thrust for a long duration. So is there any way that um, any listeners or us can keep up to date with any Gilmore developments on your hybrid engines and how it's going? Is there any way we can keep up to date with what you're up to? Yeah, I think um, it's actually, um, we have quite a bit that we post on uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, I think we might even have Twitter as well. Um, and obviously on the website as well, we post any major events of the news. Uh, and the website's constantly being updated for anything, any major developments in our progress. Um, but I think the easiest way is, yeah, Facebook or LinkedIn, LinkedIn or Twitter will post any major news or developments in our, um, in our progress, especially the test firing. So that's probably the coolest thing you can watch. Yeah, I saw some footage of the test firings. It was just like a black background, a little engine, and then it just exploded into yeah. just a thrust. Yeah, it's crazy with the plume. The plume's so much longer than the engine. It's always the way, and you're just like, well, yeah. Well, thank you, Nick, for joining us for this episode of the space junk podcast it's been lovely chatting with you it's been lovely learning about uh hybrid engines and talking with you just about how to get into the field and other stuff like that so thank you for tuning thank you for joining us yeah no problem thank you it's been great it's been great talking to you and thank you everyone who's listening from home uh hope you enjoyed this episode of the space junk podcast my name is luke pringle and i'm the i was the guest star for today if you didn't realize that so uh, thank you for tuning in and have a good one. You've been listening to the Space Junk Podcast. 
My name is Annie Hanma, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram as at Annie Hanma. If you'd like to get in contact, please send an email to thespacejunkpod at gmail.com. And to support this podcast, go to www.patreon.com slash thespacejunkpod.